Matthew chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 9 through 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But, it, but when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Then Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We know that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that it cuts down into marrow. It exposes the sin in our heart. It shows us where we don't want to give over places of our hearts to Christ. And we know, Jesus, that you have ultimate authority. That's one of the things we've been seeing over and over in chapters 8 and 9 in Matthew over the last few weeks. And so, God, I pray for us this morning that all of us, including myself, as we look at your authority, that we would bow the knee to it, that your authority would stand off the page and be completely obvious, that it would be so amazing that all we can do, all we can do is stand in amazement at this authority. And Lord, that if we would do that, that we would be changed. Would you grant that to us right now, Lord? We need your Holy Spirit to come now. I pray, Holy Spirit, that as you come, that you would fill me. And that all the words I say would be your words. We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the book of Matthew. We've been in there since December or so of 2010. And chapters 8 and 9 are two chapters that we've been studying over the last couple of months. <clears throat> and one of the huge, big, massive ideas of chapters 8 and 9 that we've been seeing is the authoritative power of Christ. And so what we've seen in chapters 8 and 9 is this authority that Jesus has to do some pretty amazing things. We see him in chapters 8 healing people. We see him in the second half of 8 calling people to follow him. That's not something we do. That's something that only God can do. We see that him showing and displaying his power over created things in chapter 8. And then we see at the end of chapter 8 him displaying his authoritative power over the unseen over the spiritual nature or the spiritual realm of things where he casts out demons. And then we went into last week and looked at chapters, <clears throat> starting at chapter 9, and really chapters, uh, chapter 9 verses 1 through 17, that entire uh, three sections there is serving as one big, huge thing for us. Now here's what I want you to see. Chapters 8 and 9 are all about the authority of Jesus. And now as we're narrowing in, and this, last week and this week we're looking at one major uh, idea, one major theme in chapter 9, verses 1 
through 17. And the, the one major thing that we're seeing uh, under the banner of the authority of Jesus is that this, this, this man, Jesus, who has ultimate authority, he has a mission. That's what we're seeing in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 9, is that he has a mission. And so we outlined the very first point last week of what, the, uh, what Matthew wants us to see regarding this mission. And we see that in verses 1 through 8. We see that he heals someone who's paralyzed. And as he goes to this person that's paralyzed, instead of healing him first, he forgives his sins, which just illustrates the authoritative power of Christ. And everyone's thinking, why did you heal his sin or forgive his sins? Why didn't you heal him? And then to show that he has the authority to forgive sin, which only God does, um, he heals him as well. And so the first thing we see in that section, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, regarding this mission of Jesus, is that his mission is to forgive sin and transform sinners. To forgive sin and transform sinners. Now, about this mission, he's calling, and the application point for us all is, we are all just like the paralytic before we come to Christ. Every single one of us has a desperate problem, just as just as completely um, impossible for this guy that's, a, that's paralyzed to do anything for himself. That is our spiritual state. But we are completely incapable of doing anything. And we need God to come and forgive our sin and to transform us. And with the transformation that this, this paralyzed guy has, where he is, he is laying there flat of his back, completely not able to do things, God forgives him and he is a changed man before he's even moving. And then he gets up physically and is able to go do things. That physical transformation is the spiritual transformation that we receive when we lie dead and then we're made alive in Christ. And so he forgives sins, and then transforms us. So now we're able to walk a life of obedience. Now we're able to walk a life of wanting to kill sin, to have a heart for people that don't know Christ, these kinds of things. So that's the first thing we see regarding the mission, is that Christ came to forgive sin and transform sinners. Now, we're going to see two things today in this next two sections regarding the mission of Christ. Two things that I want you to see. We only did point one last week. I have pretty good feeling that we can do two points today. I just did it at first service, although I was a little long. I have a feeling y'all are not going to be quite as long. So, um, All right, so we're picking up now at verse 9, so we all understand what's going on. The authoritative power, uh, power is the banner in which we're looking at chapters 8 and 9, specifically now that he has a mission. Now we know he has a mission to forgive sin and transform sinners. What's this next part of the mission? What's the next thing we need to see regarding the mission of Christ? Look at verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 9. <clears throat> and it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now, Matthew is being autobiographical here. He's speaking of himself, and he's talking about his own calling to Christ. Interestingly, Matthew calls himself Matthew. Now, at first we think, well, of course he did. That's his name. Um, but the other gospel writers call him Levi. And so, what's the deal? Well, we know that there's many instances in the New Testament, and even the Old, when someone meets God, they're transformed, and sometimes God gives them a new name. Matthew is the new name, and so Matthew is wanting to hold on to this new name because he's been made a new person in Christ. And so in his particular account of the gospel, he gives his name Matthew. Now, um, that's, that's pretty awesome that he wants to show how he's transformed. But the second part of this verse um, it's not so great about him. Look what it says. Matthew, passing on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at, here it is, a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, Matthew is showing that he had a pretty 
in most Jewish eyes, vile occupation. They did not appreciate tax collectors whatsoever. The reason why they didn't like tax collectors, the reason why tax collectors weren't looked upon with great admiration is because tax collectors by the people who were Jewish were looked as traitors to the people who were Jewish. These tax collectors served the ends of the overlords. The ends of the overlords were oppression. And they served the ends of the overlords by... um, they didn't serve the ends of the Jewish people by taking their money. So here's what's going on. is The tax collectors were absolute hated people. Why is Matthew talking about how hated he was? Well, we're going to do that in a second. But let me say, basically, here's what's going on with Matthew. Matthew was a, a Jewish man who had purchased the right to go collect taxes from other people who were Jewish. Now, whenever he's doing that, we can imagine how these other people who are Jewish feel. He's going, he's purchased the right to go take taxes from people who are Jewish to give to Caesar. And when Caesar would collect these funds, it was funding the army that was thereby coming and oppressing the very Jewish people of which Matthew was a part of. So we can see now the, the growing hatred in which the Jews must have had for Matthew, who was a fellow Jew. He is a traitor beyond traitors. He's taking our money and giving it to an army that's oppressing us. So Matthew is not painting himself in a very good light whatsoever. All right. Now, we're going to see in that same vein, because Matthew was seen as such a terrible person, um, we're going to see in verse 10, as he's called and as he's transformed, he immediately invites all the riffraff that he's been a part of, all the sinners, all the people that are terrible, to come to a party at his house. The Pharisees, as we're going to see in just a second, they're very offended at the harlots and the renegades and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners that are at this party, of which we're going to talk about in just a second. So here's the deal. Let me take one little, one little uh, apologetic sidestep from the narrative just to throw out one thing. And this is just for free. It doesn't necessarily have to do with our main theme of the authoritative power and the mission of Jesus. But just one little sidestep for all of us who love apologetics. Sometimes people that don't know Christ, and, and whether they're angry atheists or just agnostics, they just, I don't know. We can show them texts like this where they say, oh, this was written by a guy, they had an agenda. Of course they're going to paint themselves in the greatest light and Jesus in the greatest light. Well, he's not painting himself in a great light here. He's calling, him a tax, calling himself a tax collector, identifying, being, being very self-deprecating, showing that he was, he was a wretched sinner and no one liked him. And so... He, if he was, if he had an agenda, he would he would paint himself as someone who is very very well liked, uh, and we know that he also went and and died for this very thing. So he was also a tax collector, and so tax collectors are able to keep very accurate records. And there's no reason for his accurate records to not be truthful because he's very self-deprecating as he writes about himself. So just a little apologetic sidestep when some people attack the scriptures specifically the validity of the writers, um, there's places that we can use in the text to show apologetically that these, these are reliable scriptures. Back to the actual theme. Here we go. So he calls himself a tax collector. And then notice this, this beautiful immediacy of, of obedience of Matthew. He looks at him and he says, Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. And he rose and followed him just like that. Clear application for us is that if Christ calls you in your life, there, on some in some levels, I know that we have some kind of an, you know intellectual questions and things like that. But the moment we know that we're being called, 
The right response for us is just like Matthew, immediate obedience. Now, the question is here, when we see this, what happened? Um, did Matthew just leave everything, left his job, left his occupation, left his way of making financial means? Did he leave everything? Well, we're going to see in the very next verse, he doesn't leave everything. He keeps his house. This is pretty significant. Um, and I've kind of touched on this as we talked about the mission. When Christ calls you to be radical and Christ calls you to be on mission... And we always say, Christ is calling you to leave everything. And you're always thinking, well, I'm supposed to sell my house and move over to the 1040 window. And I'm supposed to be poor the rest of my life and raise my kids in third world hospitals and, and, and countries and let them be born in third world hospitals and these kinds of things. Maybe so. But here, Matthew called immediate obedience. And what does he do? He keeps his house and he has a party. So perhaps for us, some great immediate application for us is now that you've been called, now let's notice who he invites. Look what he says in verse 10, uh, verse 11. It says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said, I'm sorry, I'm, I didn't finish verse 10. And many tax collectors, and behold, all right, I'm, I'm way off. Let's just start at verse 10. I, I, all right, and he rose and followed him. Verse 10. <laughs> and as Jesus reclined at table in the house. Now, um, this clearly, and we just know this means that he's, Jesus is coming to the table of Matthew's house. <clears throat> and it said, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclined with Jesus and his disciples. So Matthew's called. He's part of the followers of Christ now. Immediate obedience. And we don't know the turnaround, but in Matthew's eyes, it's a quick turnaround. It could have been a day, but Matthew says, verse 9, verse 10. Here's my quick obedience. Not only am I called following, but now I'm having a party and I'm inviting all the sinners I know so that they can see Jesus. Very great application for us. When you've been called, you had to, are to have immediate obedience to follow Christ, but now you're also called to call others to people to Christ to join the mission. So that, here's my second point. Christ has a mission. Big overarching idea of, in chapter 9 here. Christ has a mission. Here it is. To call people to join the mission so they'll call others, dot, 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 to join the mission so they'll call others to join the mission. Dot, I mean, it's just so you can just, you know, it goes on forever. So that's, that's the whole point of the dot, 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 is that Christ has called Matthew to join the mission. What does he do? Immediately, he invites every sinner he knows, all the tax collectors, all the sinners, over to his house and Jesus and has a party so that they can all meet Christ, so that they can become saved, they can start following Christ, and then they can start being on mission as well. That's the application for us. That's exactly what Christ wants us to do. Now... Um, Let's look, at, let's look at verse 11. And we're going to see, after Matthew has this great immediate response of obedience in verse 10, there's, there's some discord in the hearts of the Pharisees. And we want to understand what's going on here. The, uh, the Pharisees, they have the uh, I'm the best syndrome, basically. That's just who they are. <laughs> One day, my, my six, seven-year-old, seven-year-old and I were watching... On, on, on Sunday afternoons or even Saturdays, sometimes we like to mix in a little football. And so inside these, these stories of, of, of these games of football, there's all kinds of cell phone commercials. And she's seven and she's already picked up. She says this, how come every cell phone company thinks that they're the best? They all, every time there's a commercial, they come on and they say how great they are. And then the next one comes on and says, no, 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 that one's not great. I'm the best. No, 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 that one's not great. Like, it's just, 
A seven-year-old notices this. And this is, this is the exact same syndrome in which the Pharisees have. No, 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 no. You're not the best. You're not the best. I'm the best. I understand everything the best. They have the cell phone. I'm the best syndrome. That's what the Pharisees have. And so immediately, as Matthew has shown radical obedience to follow Christ, leaving everything behind, and then, you know, as fast as we know, verse 9 to verse 10, has a party, invites all the sinners he knows to meet Christ. Of course, there's the naysayers. The I'm the best Pharisees. Look what they say in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, obviously, they believe that if you hang out with tax collectors and sinners, then you become ceremonially unclean. And becoming ceremonially unclean is about the worst thing that can happen in the world. Why would you do that as good Jewish people? You know you're supposed to be ceremonially unclean. What the world? You don't have any idea. We're better than you. We have, I'm the best. You're the worst. I'm the best syndrome. Um, so that's, that's what's going on here. And so... This is kind of the, the best way we can look at it is this. Um, if Jesus Christ were alive physically with us right now on earth, we have to be really specific because he is alive physically right now in heaven. But if he were right now here with us in earth, walking around, who are the people that he would be hanging around? Who are the people that we, if we, if we were to go where he was, who would be the people that he would be around? Well, the best indicator of that is what he does here. Look at his life. He's around the sinners. He's around those people that need him. And so, since he's in heaven, and we as the body of Christ have the spirit of Christ in us, and we're all alive physically, hopefully. We have a pulse. Who are the people that we should find ourselves primarily around? I'm not saying that we should never be around uh, believers. Of course we should. We have to have accountability. We have to have people around us that can um, pull us back and be able to speak into our lives and give us encouragement and these kind of things. But if we're looking at Christ, we should be just like them. We have been called, just like Matthew, to join the mission. And we've also not just been called to be saved and be safe for the rest of our life as saved. We're also called to go and start bringing people to the party, if you will, of knowing Christ. We're to be around the sinners. We're to be around the renegades. We're to be around the harlots. We're to be around the prostitutes. And obviously with discernment, no guy here needs to start a prostitute ministry. But you know what I'm saying. You know, we, we know exactly what we're saying. That we're supposed to have um, intelligence about it, but we know that we're supposed to be like Christ in this because we have the Spirit of Christ in us and we're supposed to be around people that are sinners. There's no other way that they're going to get saved. That's been the plan of God. It's clear in Romans 10. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel. And we have the beautiful feet because we're in Christ. Now, they, the, uh, I'm the best Pharisees have this little question. <clears throat> and then Jesus, boy, he gives them like a one, two, three punch here. It's, it's pretty awesome. And so let's look at what he says here. They say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said, verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And... We're going to keep that kind of that little that verse right there in twelve in our back pocket because it's going to, we're going to approach that same idea with the last phrase in thirteen. But let's just look at the next couple of things. And it says, "Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came to call. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." That last little phrase, "For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners," sounds very much like verse twelve. Those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. 
keep those things right there. We're going to come right back to them. Let's look at verse 13. Look what he says. And this is, this, this is the one, two, three punch of Jesus. He's going to hit him with the Pharisaical saying. He's going to hit him with an Old Testament verse. And then he's going to tell him the big, huge truth, which he says with the bookends of 12 and 13. So let's look at this. Verse 13, he says, go and learn. Go and learn what this means. So this go and learn was actually a very common phrase used by the Pharisees. They used it in a very sarcastic manner, a very mocking way towards all the people. Because remember, they have the I'm the best cell phone syndrome, so everybody else is imbeciles. And so since they're imbeciles, whenever they say something so intelligent, they would throw out this phrase, <clears throat> go and learn what this means, and then point them to a scripture that apparently corrected them. Very sarcastic. Um, and so it was, it was meant to be with a rebuke uh, to those who people needed to go and study more. So Christ employs their own saying and tells them, now, Jesus can do this in a way that's not sinful. And, and perhaps none of us can do this, but he can. And so, just to remind you of that, he tells them, go and learn what this means. That's the first little thing. Using their phrase to show them that they actually are the ones that need to go study some more. Because they've got it all wrong. What do they have all wrong? Glad you asked. Next phrase. Look what he says. I desire, go and learn what this means. Now, he's going to do a little quote here. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This phrase right here, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is a direct quote from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Chapter 6, verse 6. So, I desire. So, he wants them, who are the Pharisees, to remember what this... Go study some more Hosea 6, 6. And then you're going to understand why in the world I'm hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees. All right, so... Whenever we look at, <clears throat> I desire mercy, not sacrifice, that phrase, what we need to do is we need to go over to the phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, in Hosea 6.6, 6, and understand why is it in, in context of Hosea 6.6. 6. What's going on in Hosea 6.6? 6? Whenever they, that's, Hosea writes this, what is it that the Israelites of that time need to understand? And when we know what they need to understand, we can import that application into where we are in this particular text, and we can know why they need to learn what they need to learn. Hosea 6.6, 6, where he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. <clears throat> in the context of Hosea 6.6, 6, before this, the point that Hosea was trying to make was, Israelites, God has given us a great religion. He has given us this religion in order that we can have atonement for our sin. The, the great atonement is coming one day, which is Christ, but we're living far before that. And he's given us a religious system in which we can take animals, we can take them, we can sacrifice them, and make atonement for our sins. But the whole point of making atonement for sins is not just so that you can find yourself in this rote exercise of slaying animals and then saying, I did my deal and I'm supposed to go. Instead, there's supposed to be something behind the killing of the animals. Repentance of sin. There's supposed to be something behind it, which is a deep, heartfelt angst about sin in your life. A deep, heartfelt want of repentance in your life, so that when you're making the sacrifice, you're very thankful for the religion that God has given you, that you can appease the wrath of God until the sacrifice comes of the Messiah, and you can have heartfelt repentance. They were not getting this. They were forgetting that God was a compassionate God in Hosea, and that God in mercy had sought after the Israelites. He had called them and he was providing yearly atonement. Import that Hosea 6.6 6 meaning into where we are. The exact same thing is happening. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you're missing the exact same point. God desires mercy. 
God desires repentant hearts. You have hard hearts. You're not repentant of sin. The Pharisees were supposed to remember the point, which is mercy. And as Matthew, who had been called and had now, from verse 9 to 10, immediately started showing a merciful heart towards all the people that were sinners, tax collectors, and invited all of them to his house, he had demonstrated an understanding of the mercy they were supposed to have. The Pharisees weren't. They weren't demonstrating this mercy. And Jesus is telling them, you're supposed to be merciful to sinners. D.A. Carson, commenting on this particular verse, says this. This is so good. He said, we are, as believers, we are nothing more than poor beggars telling others where there is bread. We are nothing more than poor beggars telling others where there is bread. Our lives are to be characterized by mercy because we've been shown mercy. And so they're freaking out, the Pharisees. And then he gives them the the one punch, go and learn. And then he quotes Hosea 6. And then he tells them this last part. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Sounding very much like the first part there. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, what he's not doing is this. He's not telling the Pharisees categorically, oh, so that must mean, Pharisees, that you're well. That must mean that you're righteous. And all these other people, they're the ones who are sick. They're the ones who are sinners. Good job. You're fine. You don't need me because you're all righteous. That's not what he's trying to tell them because obviously we know them and them, everyone, are all in the category of sick and sinners. But there is a distinction the Pharisees don't know they're in the category of sick and sinner. But the prostitutes and the tax collectors are very much aware. So, what we want to see here is this. He's, Jesus is saying, I'm not calling the people that don't recognize that they're sinners. I'm not calling you, I'm the best people. I'm calling sinners. I'm calling the people that, everybody, that, the people that, that you despise Pharisees, the people that you think are repugnant, that's who I'm calling. And right here in verse 13, we can see the mission of of the Messiah. We can see the mission of Jesus. If we say, why did Jesus come? What was the point of Jesus coming to, to live? We know that it was the cross, but what's the point of the cross? We can zero in to Matthew 9.13. You, can, you, can, you need to memorize it. This is the mission of the Messiah, the messianic mission. Here it is. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came and lived to call sinners. That was his mission. So, we fast forward to the end of the book of Matthew, where he shows his authority. He he tells them, I've got authority. Remember 9.13? I came to call sinners. Here I am standing here in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, 18, 19 and 20. And I'm saying, I've got all authority. And you apostles, I want you now to go make disciples. In other words, go find the people who are sinners and make them disciples. And so the messianic mission that Christ had before he died, he's now given over to the apostles. And then if we keep going forward, we see in Ephesians 3.10, where Paul writes, he says, it's the... Um, purpose of God that the manifold wisdom of God will be put on display through the church. That's a rephrase, but that's what it says. It says that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom will be put on display. In other words, the 
mission of Jesus was given over to the apostles to go make disciples, to call people to mission. And then that apostles became the church. And now it's the mission of the church to do this very thing right here. The mission of us, the mission of Remedy Church and every single church that believes in Jesus is not to call the righteous, but sinners to go make disciples. That's everyone. The messianic mission now is our mission to call people to Christ. So what we can see here, the application is that Jesus is entangling himself in the lives of sinners. He's entangling himself in the lives of sinners, not for the purpose of engaging in sin. Definitely not for that purpose, and nor should we. There's discernment on which sinners we should hang out with, which I've already kind of referenced. So we know, you know, ask your wife, ask your husband, should I engage in this? Ask your accountability partner. Ask someone that is more mature than you spiritually. I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Don't just say, I know what I'm going to do. This, you know, pray about it for sure. Take the Holy Spirit's leading and ask other people. But we all know that we're supposed to be on mission. We're all supposed to know that we're supposed to do this. Entangling ourselves in the lives of sinners. Here's what John Calvin says as he's talking about this mission of God. This is awesome. Christ came to quicken the dead, to justify the guilty and condemn, to wash those who were polluted and full of wickedness, and to rescue the lost from hell, to clothe with his glory those who were covered with shame, to renew to a blessed immortality those who were debased by disgusting vices. That's what he has done for every single one of us. That is over-the-top glorious. So as we're going through this this uh, little set of verses from 9 and 13, I want to hold out to us two pieces of advice, two cautions before we go into the next set of verses when we're talking about the fact that Christ has come in the second one and called people to join the mission so that they'll call other people to join the mission so that they'll call, I mean, and on and on and on, like a, a 2 Timothy 2.2 2 kind of thing. The two little cautions I want you to see. The first thing is we don't need to become like the Pharisees. We don't need to become like the Pharisees. Here's what I mean. They found themselves in a place where the religion that had been given to them that was supposed to have a repentant heart and in the sacrificial system, they took that for granted. They took what they had for granted. And so for us, there should, we should strive in our lives to not find ourselves in a place where we're taking our salvation for granted. We should wake up every day with a profound gratitude for our salvation in Christ. We don't want to ever be in a place where we've gotten over being saved by Jesus. Don't take it for granted. Don't be like the Pharisees. If we, in the morning when you wake up, you don't feel this immense gratitude for being in Christ, you go into the Scriptures because it's promised to us that we can see Christ most clearly in the Scriptures. And you dive in and you say, Lord, I don't cherish my salvation. I don't have love affections for Christ this morning. Give them to me as I come in here. Give them to me as, over this week as I study. Give them to me over this next month as I study. I desperately need to have deep Love affections for Christ and not get over what you've done for me at the cross. And you trust. You trust that he'll do it. That's the first advice of application. The other thing is this. And this is to those who might not know Christ. One thing I want you to see in this text is this. If you don't know Christ, is there is immense hope for you in this verse. In this set of verses. Immense hope. Because what I hear a lot of times for people that don't know Christ is, I'm not good enough for Jesus. 
I've got a messed up life. I've got a lot of things that I've got to get right before I can come to somebody like Jesus. There is immense hope for you because here's the deal. If you feel that way, that's the moment he doesn't want you. I mean, it's that straightforward. Look what he says. I came not to call the ones who are well, but those who are sick. I didn't call to come the righteous, but the sinners. The moment you think that you've finally got yourself together for Jesus is the moment that you have made it invalid that you're no longer needed by him or wanted by him. He wants people not like the Pharisees who have hard hearts, who get rebuked like crazy in Matthew 23. He wants them to put themselves in the categories which they already are and realize, I'm desperately sick. I'm a desperate sinner in need of grace. And those are the ones that Jesus has come to save. Those are the ones that he loves. He came to save sinners. He came to forgive sins and transform sinners. He came for the sick, the sinful, the broken, and the needy. Not the I'm the best syndrome Pharisees. And for us, not the ones who think that we've got to get it all together first. There is for you, if you're not in Christ, immense hope in this set of verses. Because if you know that you don't have it all together, that's whenever... You can be saved right now. He's holding out. He paid the price for you on the cross by dying for you. If you don't know Christ, you can know him right now and receive eternal life forever and forgiveness. That's the great thing about the gospel. So the second thing that we want to see here in, in, in this set of verses is that he called people to join the mission so that they'll call other people to join the mission so that they'll call people and on and on. Next thing that we see that is starting in verse 14. Um, verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist. I like to shorthand it as JTB, and you don't have to, but it's my little fun thing. So we're in verse 14, and Matthew is he's reinstituting into the narrative for us John the Baptist. Now, we've seen him already back in Matthew 3. And just as a quick refresh, whenever he gave us John the Baptist in Matthew 3, we see John the Baptist preaching repentance, preaching that the Pharisees need to come to repentance. And right after that, we see an amazing thing that John the Baptist is the one who gets to baptize Jesus. Pretty awesome. Like, only one guy in the world gets that honor. That's a good one. Uh, as a matter of fact, we see in, in the book of John that Jesus says of John the Baptist, um, among, women, among men born of women, there is no, no one more greater. Something along those lines. So John the Baptist, in Jesus' eyes, was, was pretty awesome. He was also a fanatic. He ate bugs and wore animal skin. But he was, but in Jesus' eyes, um, very much a great guy. Now here's the thing. Uh, with all leaders, and John the Baptist was a leader, he has followers. And so his followers will very much mimic this. John the Baptist, as I said, was a fanatic. He ate bugs. He was an ascetic. He was a minimalist. He was someone who would do without on purpose because that, that was what he thought was the right response into God. He did it with the right heart. But since he was an ascetic, since he was a minimalist, all of his followers also think, well, I'm supposed to be an ascetic. I'm supposed to be a minimalist. Minimalist, And so they, they followed suit. And so they didn't partake in all these big meals. They didn't partake in, in all these kind of what we would call luxuries. And so they see the apostles of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, because Jesus had people that were following him, and John at this time had some still too. And they see the apostles of Jesus, or the followers of Jesus, who were eating food all the time. They're not ascetics. They're not minimalists. They're enjoying the food that, that they get to eat with Jesus. And so they have this little problem. The, the, the disciples are like, what's going on? So they come up and they approach Jesus. Now, more than likely, this is not 
the thoughts and feelings of John the Baptist himself. This is just his followers. And they approach him in verse 14. It says, The disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees, lumping yourself in the category of the Pharisees, not such a good idea, just for your free, for your whatever. So then he says, But your disciples do not fast. Your disciples do not fast. So we're the Pharisees. I mean, we're the, we're the followers of John the Baptist. We don't, we fast. We keep all those things. We, we don't do anything like that. We, we barely have anything. Maybe they're eating bugs like John the Baptist. We don't know, but <clears throat> I'd fast for sure if I had to eat bugs. But um, then you've got the followers of Jesus that are, that are eating all kinds of food. They never fast. And so they're freaking out and they're asking Jesus this. Now, this is, this is an astounding answer by Jesus. An astounding answer. And this is what he says. They say, hey, Jesus, we fast just like JTV did. How come you don't do that? How come your followers don't do that? And this is what he says. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? All right, so he's, he's answering them with a picture of a wedding. Now, if we were all at a wedding right now, and we, we're invited, the idea that you're at a wedding is you see a husband and a wife coming together. And this is not a time of mourning. <laughs> this is not like, oh, unless you really wanted to marry one of them, then it's not a real big time of mourning at all. It's a time of celebration. You're very excited. And there's all kinds of food. We know on our budgets, maybe we don't have that, but there's supposed to be, in, in this case, all kinds of food. And the last, a big celebration throughout the entire time. There's not in the, eye, in the minds of people mourning and so he's, Jesus is painting this wedding picture and he's saying, that's your answer. That's why we don't fast. <laughs> well, that's, all right, what does that mean? So here's, here's what's going on. Jesus literally, uh, D.A. Carson says, as they ask this, hey, we fast, how come you don't? D.A. Carson says, Jesus' answer is profoundly Christological. Christological means um, having to do deep, deep, deeply into the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, all the theological study that you can do in that, his answer is packed, packed with Christological implications. And he says that Jesus' answer is profoundly Christological, that its validity depends entirely on, his answer depends entirely on who he is himself, who Jesus is. And he says, basically, when he says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Basically, he looks at him and he says, be happy and celebrate. I am here. There's your answer. Now, if any of us did that, that would be extremely self-centered. I can't walk and say, everybody be happy. I'm here. Like, my children can do that. And because they're so kind of naively beautiful, that's, that's a beautiful thing. But adults simply don't do that. And this is Jesus' answer. Everybody should celebrate. I'm here. And they're kind of like, okay. Um, what are you saying? And then, here's another thing he does. He uses the term bridegroom. He uses the term bridegroom when he says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as... You shouldn't be sad, I'm here. And, look at this, as long as the bridegroom is with them. So he, he throws out the term bridegroom, which has its roots in the Jewish mind of a lot of things. A lot of things. And remember, this is Matthew writing to Jews, Jews and Jesus speaking to Pharisees who were Jewish. So there's it was kind of a little two-pronged thing that we had to examine on both, on both accounts. But he says, should the, should the guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So he, he calls himself the bridegroom. He calls himself the groom. And it has its roots in Isaiah 54, 4, 5, or 6, where Jesus says, I, or God says, Israel, I am your husband. And the entire book of Hosea where Hosea is told to marry Gomer 
and uh, Gomer goes out and prostitutes herself out and, and, and does everything, but Hosea, I'm sorry, yeah, Hosea still pursues Gomer and calls her in and God says, just like that, just like Hosea always pursues Gomer and loves her no matter what, I am your husband, I am Hosea, and you, Israel, are Gomer, and you leave, but I am a husband that loves you and will always pursue you. So Jesus employs this term bridegroom, and it has its Old Testament roots in pointing to things like Isaiah 54, things like the book of Hosea, and what Jesus is doing to the people who are the Pharisees, and what Matthew is doing for the benefit of his readers is this. He's saying, Jesus is saying when he's saying that, you should all be happy and celebrate that I'm here, the reason why you should all celebrate and be happy because I'm here, and this is why we can't say it, is because Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I'm the Savior of the world. I am the one who has come to make everything right. And there's going to be one day, we're going to get into this in just a second, where I'm going to make everything perfect again. That's why you should celebrate. Because the King of Kings is right here in front of you. The Messiah, the Savior of the entire world, stands before you. That's why we should celebrate. So the Pharisees, or I'm sorry, the, the followers of John are getting a, a pretty good answer here. Um, and then he says this: "The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. The days will come, and he's pointing to himself, where I'm going to be taken away. We know, with the benefit of reading this gospel, that it's in just a short three years. He'll go to a cross and die, and then he'll be physically away from them in heaven. And then it says, that's when you fast. That's when you fast. So you got the fasting part right, but I'm here. You don't need to fast. But one day I'll be gone, and you need to fast. We're coming back to that in just a second. We're going to conclude with verse 15. But Jesus, to illustrate this idea, uses two illustrations. He takes us to the sewing room, the studio, and then he takes us to the wine cellar. And this is what he says. To the studio, he says, the sewing studio, he says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. So he's saying, old garments... Get old pieces. When it rips, you put an old piece on there because if you wash it, then it'll rip up. Same thing with new garments. New garments get new pieces so they wear and tear at the same kind of um, time. Now you read that and you're like, I don't understand. Well, I didn't either. So verse, go to verse 17. And I don't know that 17 is going to be much more helpful. Thank goodness we have commentators. Um, so 17, it says this. Um, that, was the wi- that was the studio. Now we're going over to the wine cellar and he's going to tell us this. He says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. So whenever you have old uh, skins, you don't put new wine, and just you understand. Basically, you only put old and old, new and new. Now, I've heard people lift this out and say, oh, that means, um, <laughs> that means you don't mix uh, worship styles. You use the old worship styles of the hymn and the organ, and one, but and, and, but you never blend the two together. That's the point. Like that's not at all the point at all at all. So um, so here here we are. What is it that he's trying to tell us with these two illustrations of the sewing room and the wine cellar? <clears throat> this is what he's trying to say to him. He's saying the old the new sc- the new wine skins that Jesus is introducing is. 
cannot be stored in the old wineskins of the structures of Judaism. The new wineskins of the way Jesus is forming and making and having Christianity be now does not fit in the old wineskins or the old structures or the old cloth, if you will, of the way the Jewish system was. The old ways are over and now the new systems that Jesus is starting is here. There are so many new ways that we can't list. But what he's saying is you don't act the same way whenever the king's here. Now that the king is here, you act a certain way. And then one day the king's going to be gone and then you'll come back to fasting. But these old structures and old systems are no longer there anymore because there's a new system with me, the savior of the world. This is, this is strong speech. He is showing unbelievable authority here. And... Even more, as he's talking about the bridegroom and the going away, and then he, that's when we'll fast, we also know that there's going to be a time where he comes again and reinstitutes the kingdom where we have the great wedding feast. So here's the third thing I want you to see. Here's the third thing I want you to see. Jesus has a mission to transform sinners. Jesus has a mission to call people into the mission so they'll call more people into the mission. And Jesus has another mission. The ultimate mission, if you will, which is to bring about his coming kingdom. It's all pointing to the coming kingdom. And we're all supposed to long for this coming kingdom. We're all supposed to want to see it come into fruition now in our lifetimes, not one day in our great, great, great grandkids' lifetimes, but now. We're supposed to want it now. And then he gives a direction on how we can bring this about. One, at least one. There's many. But he gives us one. Right back up there to the end of 15. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken. The bridegroom has been taken. He's not physically here with us right now. He's in heaven. And he's promised to come again. And he says he's going to come again. But he's not here right now. So, in the spirit of celebration of the wedding, that's not where we are right now. We are to feel mourning. We are to feel aching. We are to feel longing. We are to be fasting. Because the king's not here. And he's promised to come back. And he tells us this one direction. You should fast. You should fast. Fasting is for times of yearning. Fasting is for times of aching. Fasting is for times of longing. I don't have time to unpack a whole sermon on fasting. I did that about a year ago. I invite you to go look at it on iTunes, if you will, in August of 2010. A whole hour-long sermon on fasting and praying. But let me unpack it just as a conclusion for us here. Um, The mourning, the yearning, the longing... The aching in this particular verse is not for the things that maybe we think about we long and ache and yearn and, and, and hurt for. Usually when we think of longing and aching, it's, I've got sin in my life and it breaks my heart and I know that that's not what God wants. I hate it and so it bothers me and I'm longing for it to be gone. Or I've got people who don't know Christ. I've got my brother, my sister, my family member that I love desperately and it kills me that they're not in Christ and so I shed tears that they would come to Christ. It's not either one of those kinds of, those are reasons to shed tears to kill sin in your life for people you know the longing the aching in this particular verse is because we don't have the king before us in our presence 
we can't see physically right now the Messiah. And we're supposed to want that. And we don't have it. And we're supposed to fast. And so let's just lift that up and look at the implications. Is there any ever deep ache, longing, and desire in your and in my heart to see the king? Do you find in your heart some days where you just need to be with Christ? I just, I can't be here. I need Jesus to come. Please, Lord, come today. I need you physically here. I need to enjoy the celebration of the wedding because this Genesis 3 broken world is becoming too much to bear. There's the longing in our hearts that we're supposed to feel. And if we don't, we're too comfortable with this world. This is a not suggestion, but an implication of being in Christ. You are to fast because you are to have the longings, the deep desire for your king, your bride, I'm sorry, your husband to be here now. I want you. I want your kingdom here now. Please bring it. One might say, I have the bridegroom, Fud. I have Jesus because I'm a Christian. This is why John Piper answers it. He says, it is true that Jesus has given you the Holy Spirit in his absence and that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. So in a profound and wonderful sense, Jesus is still with us. And he said, speaking of the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, I will not leave you as orphans and I'll come to you. So there is a sense in which we have Jesus with us right now. But again, and I've said not physically. He says, nevertheless, there is a greater degree of intimacy. And this is what we're talking about. This greater degree of intimacy that maybe we're just not cognizant of so often in our lives. There's a greater degree of intimacy that we will all enjoy with Christ in heaven when this age is over. So in another sense, Christ is not with us. Christ is not with us, but away from us. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, we prefer to be absent from this body and at home with the Lord. That's why Christ says in Philippians 1.23, to depart to be with Christ is far better than remaining. In other words, in this age, there is an ache or at least there should be, and I'm just as guilty as you, as you may feel. There is an ache inside every Christian that Jesus is not here as fully and as intimately and as powerfully and as gloriously as we want Him to be. We are supposed to hunger for so much more. That's why we fast. And when we feel, if you've ever gone for out food, when you feel these hunger pains and they hurt, then that, when you feel that, you're supposed to say, God, this pain that I feel right now is the pain that I want my soul to feel because you're not here right now. Come now, Lord Jesus. Come now, and you won't feel it unless you fast. When you feel the hunger pain, it drives you to feel the, the angst of your soul to say, I need you now. And that's what he's trying to say. There will be a one day when the kingdom comes, when every disease is gone. All of your pain and affliction will be gone. All the wars in this world will cease. All of the injustice that we feel and see, like slave trade and um, children put into sexual things, all those things, all that injustice will, will go away. And beauty, we will finally fully appreciate true beauty. But more than all those things, we will fully enjoy the presence of God more than we ever have. Because He's worthy. 
He has the authority to transform sinners. He has the authority to call people into the mission. And He has the authority to usher in that one day where His kingdom will come and He, the King, will be worshipped forever. And that's the day that we're supposed to long for and fast. But it's not here right now. It's not here. So what do you do? You fast. You beg. You ache and you long. Make it happen, Lord. Does this mean you fast every day? No. Does it mean maybe you fast once a week or once a month? or I don't know. It doesn't mean you fast food, maybe. But there's something. We all can do something. We need to feel and have this deep longing to see the king. And if we do, back up one section. We probably won't find ourselves getting over our salvation as often as we don't want ourselves to. He's given a mission to the church to proclaim his truth and his power and to tell sinners that Jesus has come to forgive sin and transform sinners. And that's where every single one of us pick up this mission and carry it out. So we're going to go into our time of response now. And however the Holy Spirit's leading, we've, we've heard from, hopefully, the word of the Lord. And he's spoken to you. The God that created everything has spoken straight into your heart right now. And so that's not something where you hear and you kind of jet out of here in three minutes. That takes a little time to think. That takes a little time to process. That takes a little time to respond. And so we're going to have a little bit of time of worship here where we want you to read. We want you to think. We want you to pray. We want you to repent. So wherever you are right now, during this time of worship, maybe you just want to stand and sing immediately. Maybe you want to read through this again and think through places where you haven't been transformed or you don't know Christ and you need to be transformed or you've been called on mission but haven't taken that transition from verse 9 to verse 10. You've been saved, but you're not on mission yet. Or perhaps you don't long to see Christ face to face as much as we all should. And just pray and repent. Not, if you're in Christ, God's not mad at you. He's never mad at you. He's never going to have any wrath towards you ever. All that was put on the Son. This is the beautiful thing of the gospel. You are a son or a daughter in perfect right relationship with Him. Enjoy that right now as we worship. Enjoy that. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the cross. And as we go into our time of response through song right now, I do pray, God, that you would however you're leading every single one of us, that you would give us the desire to be obedient. Perhaps we need to sit. Perhaps we need to stand. Perhaps we need to read. Perhaps we need to pray. Whatever it is, Lord, may we be obedient. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.